Hey, Gamer Nation. Many of you know that two-thirds of our hosts are here in the great state of Texas, um, also where Gamer Nation Con is held each year. Though we in the Dallas area have fortunately been spared the devastation of Hurricane Harvey, friends and family, as well as many members of the Gamer Nation, have not. The intense destruction and flooding of the Texas coast and the Houston area is staggering. Uh, at least 35 lives have been lost, countless animal deaths, along with an estimated $70 billion in property and infrastructure damage. And currently, tens of thousands of good people are homeless, struggling for basics like medical care, clothing, and food. Thousands of dedicated volunteers and service people are doing their best to help. This is a terrible tragedy, and it's in our backyard, y'all. We at the Order 66 podcast offer our heartfelt sympathy for those affected by this, and if, like us, you want to do a bit more to help those in the need in need in this aftermath, we encourage you to do so. And the best thing you can do is simply make a donation to a reputable charity who is working hard to help. The Houston Food Bank, the Food Bank of Corpus Christi, the Houston Humane Society, and the Houston SPCA, as well as the San Antonio Humane Society, all well-regarded, well-rated, respectable agencies working hard in the area right now to help those affected and could really use your support. And if you're so inclined, you can make a donation to any of those fine organizations online directly from charitynavigator.org. Or if you're more comfortable donating to a larger, well-known relief organization that is also working intensively hard down there, there's always the American Red Cross. By simply texting Red Cross, all one word, uppercase, to 90999, a $10 donation will be added to your next phone bill and sent immediately to the Red Cross. Doesn't get much easier than that. Stay strong, families and friends. The Gamer Nation is your country, and we are here for you. D20 Radio, your gamers roll. Live. You're listening to the Order 66 podcast, brought to you by Gamer Nation Studios, D20 Radio, and the generous donations of Jared Williams, Kevin Malone, Donald Weller, Sean Kumar, Darren Hampton, Andy Bethel, B. Witzel, and Balaam's Blasters. What is up, Gamer Nation? Welcome to the Order 66 podcast. And if you are tuning in for the very first time, you're in for a treat because we have a very special guest host tonight. But the person talking right now in your ear holes is uh, GM Chris, and I am one of your co-hosts as well. And uh, I am joined tonight uh, by, uh, of course, our, our normal regular co-host, Mr. GM Phil. Phil, how are you? And I say that flippantly because I want to talk about how you really are in a bit. <laughs> All things considered, right now, I'm pretty okay. <laughs> That's good. That's good. But uh, we are also joined by a special guest co-host tonight, also from the Texas-Dallas area. Uh, the Texas-Dallas area. The Dallas-Texas-Dallas area. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
um, known to D20 Radioites um, as a longtime listener and community member, Darth Zorg. Uh, Darth Zorg, um, but known to all of us locally as your, uh, your friend, uh, Darren West. Hello, Darren. How are you, man? Hey, guys. Good. Good. We're glad you could join us today. Um, you uh, obviously pledged to uh, contribute to last year's Gamer Nation Con, or I guess I should say this year's Gamer Nation Con this past spring, um, to co-host an episode with us, and we are absolutely thrilled to have you on. You have supported Gamer Nation Con, like like obviously you support the Kickstarter, but you also ha- provide have provided for the past couple of years um, some of the coolest auction swag that we have. You do those incredibly awesome uh, conversion pr- uh, painted minis, so they are. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I hope to have some new ones this year. I'm going to put a, a bunch of new ones in. I'm going to try to up the amount that I put in for the end. Well, don't don't hurt yourself. We want you to have some fun and enjoy yourself. <laughs> but uh, Oh, definitely. I've got some new ideas. I can't wait to see what everybody thinks. Oh, I can't wait either. Um but we're, we're very glad you're here, man. We're very glad you're here. GM Dave, unfortunately, cannot be with us tonight. Um, it is his anniversary weekend, so he is spending some much-needed time with his wife, and I can't blame the guy for that one iota. Um, thankfully, we've got uh, we've got Darren here to help uh, fill Big Dave's shoes. And uh, you guys might notice, so Phil, man, I didn't think you were going to be with us tonight either. Um I mean, and, and I, I know I was pretty uncertain <laughs> myself. <laughs> um, but but you seem to be sounding okay. Um, you've had a pretty recent and serious medical issue. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Um, back in June, uh, well, I found, I didn't notice that there was a, a kind of a lump on the side of my neck, pretty much run, running right under my entire left jaw from the kind of the base of the jaw down to just about the chin, uh, hidden by my beard that I had grown, no less. Go fig. <laughs> Um, so I checked it out, got a doctor look at it, and the doctor's like, "Oh yeah, it's some kind of it's 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 a cyst thing. We you know medical thing. It's it, you know basically when the neck forms when you're an infant, it could create this kind of gap that if nothing happens at childhood, something could happen later in life and it just fills with fluid and becomes a cyst. And we just remove it, we just test it, make sure that there's nothing wrong. So the doctor's like, no big deal. So you know you can schedule for whenever. I'm like, okay, since I've got Gen Con coming up in August, I'm gonna hold off until uh, I'm gonna hold off until after Gen Con, because you know I didn't want to have this surgery go on and then have to go to Gen Con. I'm kind of glad I did it that way. So the last day, I went in for the procedure, and the doctor had me opened up, and he looked at it and went, "Oh no, that's not a cyst. That's a cancerous lymph node." So while it was in there, he removed the, the cancerous lymph node, removed a couple other lymph nodes around it, uh, took a look down my throat with a scope, made sure that there was no cancer on my voice box, larynx, that sort of thing, and then couldn't quite figure out where the cancer had come from, so they checked a big case study that said that in these situations it's usually uh, the corresponding tonsil or sometimes the base of the tongue. So they took a biopsy from the base of my tongue, they removed my left tonsil, and, um, yeah, I, um, I apparently had, had or have cancer. Good night. Um, um, they're wow. still, they, they're, the doctor's not incredibly alarmed about it in the, in the sense that he thinks he got it all. All signs say that he got it all. We're waiting for the final biopsy results to come back. I should have that on Tuesday. Okay. Um, cause I got all kinds of meetings next week with, um, with, um, oh man. 
Yeah, the did uh, radiation doctors and medicine doctors and stuff like that. So, oncologists. That's the word I'm looking for. Oncologists. Yeah. Got a few of those that I'm uh, that I'm meeting with on Tuesday and having a, a sort of a, a CAT scan on on Wednesday just to make sure. And we'll see how where treatment goes from there. Maybe radiation. Don't think I need. We don't. We don't seem to think it's something that needs chemo. So. But um, yeah, it's it's been kind of an alarming week. And no kidding. Um, so I'm, I was pretty amazed when you contacted me. It's like, you know what? I think I'm going to do the show tonight. I'm like, you are an insanely dedicated weirdo. <laughs> I'm, I'm taking it easy. I'm taking it easy. I've been, you know, I've been on soft foods all week because it hurts to swallow anything hard. Because I'm just saying, if I ever have throat surgery and a tonsillectomy that, you know, mm-hmm. is, is either post or current cancerous, um, you know, yeah, y'all ain't going, y'all ain't going to hear my ass for a long time. I'm just saying. <laughs> Um, no, I, I, I'm, I feel good. I feel, I feel a hell of a lot better than I did on Tuesday. I'll tell you that much right now. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to take it easy. I'm, I'm being careful and I want to, I want to do the show. Well, you are here to do the show and we have quite a show to do. Um, so it's also Labor Day weekend, so we even have time for some post. I'd love to get some Gen Con war stories from the two of you. So maybe if we can stick around to post show, talk about it. Would love to, man. Yes. Fantastic. Well, what do you boys say we roll right into this with some announcements? Sound good? Let's do it. Announcements. Let's do it. Hello there. What have we here? Good news. Announcements, announcements. All right, Throaty Phil, <laughs> do we have a featured podcast this week? We do. Uh, for those aspiring to become a great GMs in this system, you can do far worse than listening to some of the really solid live play from a good group. And to that end, one of the best options out there is Dice for Brains, an amazing live play Star Wars podcast. They actually just finished out Act 1 of Season 6 and dropped their sixth special episode a chat where the players get some conflict and some XP, and reflect on the first act of Season 6. Great example of ongoing Session Zero that's worth a listen. Great job, guys. Keep it on up. And you can find that and many more great podcasts at www.d20radio.com. Word. Some juicy bits of web goodness. I got a good one for you guys, man. Um, I actually had a listener reach out um, just to chat and, and kind of related to a project he was working on. And I need to talk to you guys about a Star Wars webcomic because I really want to pimp this out. I want to pimp this out. I want to pimp him out. His name is Jim Mello, and he is a longtime listener of the podcast. Um, and that's something that Jim has worked on is called a Star Wars comic, which he writes. You've got to check this out if you're listening. This is a monthly Star Wars anthology series that explores the characters, the ideas, and themes of a galaxy far, far away. And some of the stories are actually inspired by Jim and the artists role-playing FFG's escapades. (laughs) Um, It is free, and it is the best online Star Wars comic I have read since Fandom Comics. Um, so you got to check it out. Head over to uh, just a starwarscomic.com and check it out. They've got eight issues up. Uh, they release monthly. It's brilliantly written, brilliantly illustrated, just bloody brilliant. Nothing is better than Star Wars comics written by Star Wars gamers, guys, because they get it. 
Um, so I can't recommend this enough. Have either of you two heard of heard of a Star Wars comic yet? No. Not this one, dude. I'm gonna check it out though. You've got to check it out. It, it's you know the the episodes are the the issues are short. They're sweet. They're pithy. Um, and it's just very well written. Great stuff. Great stuff. Um, and each one's an anthology, so it's a separate series. It's not like you have to catch up. You can literally grab an episode out or grab an issue out, read it, and it's a self-contained story. It's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Cool. Well, and after you're done catching your breath from some amazing online comics, um, you need to swing by your keyboard over to uh, www.d20radio.com, the only gaming blog certified for at-work viewing by the Black Sun Crime Syndicate. Oh, yeah. It continues to be the best place for fan-generated content and articles. Uh, some highlights from the past week. Uh, Kim Franzen continues with his amazing series, Finding the Path, focused on the schools of magic in the Pathfinder RPG. The m- most recent episode focuses on enchantment. Kim goes through the varied sub-schools and how to use them in your game and highlights the best and most interesting spells players and GMs can use. It's a really great read. Scott Alden continues his The Path Less Traveled series in the GM Awakens, where he looks at unusual specializations to play in Star Wars. This time, the the aggressor, highlighting the core capabilities and expectations of the spec. Scott also discusses good synergies with other specs, species, and a great talent combo usage. Really well done, Scott. And you can find this and much more daily over at www.d20radio.com. Oh, yes. And of course, while you're over there, you guys will find two buttons on the right-hand side of the page. One will take you to our thriving forum community. The other will take you to our Patreon. Or you can just head to patreon.com slash d20radio, where if you guys enjoy the content that we produce, not just the podcast, but also the the online content through the blog, toss us a couple bucks a month. It's all we ask. Keeps the lights on, keeps the servers running, and keeps our authors paid for the work they continue to contribute. And of course, stay in the know. Follow D20 Radio on social media. We have a D20 Radio Facebook group that is full of discussion, news, and podcast info on a daily basis, as well as the Order 66 podcast official Facebook page. You can also follow us all on Twitter, at D20 Radio. We post and tweet show info and announcements regularly. And that is that. Okay, guys, before we get into the meat of this show, we got something else we got to get into because it is time to return to another episode of Gaming Tidbits with GM Hooley. Uh, se- I love these. I know, and the last one was a cliffhanger, <laughs> so I'm really excited. Um, this is a segment where, in about 10 minutes, our own Aussie for Hire, GM Hooley, will delve into a specific topic of the FFG Star Wars system, bringing together scattered rules and dev rulings, summarizing all major points and answered questions, everything that you need to know about that tidbit to run it in your games. And in tonight's gaming tidbit, Hooley continues his cliffhanger on vehicle combat and those epic escapades. Let's give it a listen. Hello there, I am M8AU, Human Cyborg Relations. Welcome to Gaming Tidbits with GM Hooley, a podcast where we will discuss specific rules within the Star Wars role-playing game. You are looking for GM Hooley, are you not? Very well, sir. He is at the helm, if you recall. I would tip you there myself, but as you can see, the engine is looking a little worse for wear, and I'm up to my servos in spare parts. I'm told the Empire has boxed us in, and there is little chance for our survival. I'm sure that GM Hooley could use your assistance back at the gunnery station. 
can't hold them off forever, M8. That last hit to the starboard engine reduced our speed significantly. My dash is a sea of red right now. I'm not giving up without a fight. Our cargo is too important. How are the repairs coming along? I hope M8 didn't get in your way too much. How are you with firing weapons? Sir, I've been able to get the engines back online, but the hyperdrive is a little worse for wear. Oh, um, possibly even a little worse for wear? Carabas, well, there's three ties ahead of us. Perhaps, my friend, you'd be so kind to do me the honours? Good shot! That's given us the opening we need. Time to head planet side so I can get a closer look at whatever damage they've caused. Let's hope this cloud cover keeps the Imperials at bay for a while. By the way, that's some serious gunnery skills you've got there, my friend. After what I saw up there, are you sure you need my advice? If you insist, I'm always happy to help. Last time we covered vehicle movements, and now we'll take a look at the basics to round off vehicle combat, including not only gunnery, but some of the other actions that can be formed by you and your crew. As I mentioned last time, there are pilot-only actions and pilot-only manoeuvres, and I would recommend checking out that episode before continuing here. There are many things that can be done within a vehicle, including firing a weapon. But aside from that, one of the most important things that can be done on a vehicle is the angle deflector shields manoeuvre. This manoeuvre allows a character to move one point of a vehicle's defence from one defence zone to another. This action can be formed by anybody who has access to the shield controls, which is normally the pilot, the co-pilot, or anyone sitting or positioned in an auxiliary station or engineering station. This is a standard manoeuvre and therefore can be performed more than once in a turn. Sir, should you mention shields and facing? So helpful, M8. Yes, we should. Oh, thank you, sir. <sighs> anyway, in the Star Wars role-playing game, vehicles have different facings or defence zones, namely forward, also known as the front, aft, which is also known as the rear, port, also known as left, and starboard, also known as right. Each zone has an accompanying defence or shield rating, ranging from between 0 and 4, which equates to how many setback dice are added to an attacker's dice pool when that vehicle is fired upon. Vehicles with a silhouette of between 1 and 4 have a forward and aft defence rating only, while vehicles with a silhouette of 5 or more have defence ratings on all four zones. In the Star Wars role-playing game's narrative style of combat, facing can be difficult, however can be assisted with the use of my suggested hexagonal board sections, miniatures on a table, or just a piece of paper indicating which vehicles are where. Vehicles with a silhouette of between 0 and 4 attack and are attacked using the vehicle's best defence zone. This represents the vehicle's dogfighting and moving about quickly in a battle zone. However, pilots using the gain the advantage action may choose which zone they wish to attack on a given vehicle if their attempt at the action is successful. Something to note though is that vehicles with a silhouette of 5 or more cannot perform the gain the advantage action. Vehicles with a silhouette of 5 or more though are targeted wherever their attacker is positioned, so some common sense must be applied here. But again, knowing where the vehicles are can be alleviated with the use of miniatures or tokens as mentioned before. The final vehicle specific manoeuvre is increased power. This can be found on page 72 of the Age of Rebellion supplement, Stay on Target. 
This maneuver can only be performed by an astromech droid in an astromech socket and allows an astromech to increase the speed of a vehicle by one at the cost of two system strain for a number of rounds equal to the astromech's intellect. The downside, though, is that the vehicle's handling is reduced by two for that period. Multiple uses of this manoeuvre, however, do not stack. Oh, I'm glad we don't have one of those on board. Now, now, M8. Astromechs have feelings too, you know. Astromechs are not the only ones that get to do things on a vehicle that can assist the pilot. So I guess this is as good as time as any to talk about actions aboard a vehicle. May I, sir? Well, since you're the one who got the engines back up and running, M8, why not? Oh, thank you, sir. Beings aboard a ship may perform any actions they desire. However, vehicle-specific actions include damage control, which allows a crew member to repair either hull trauma or system strain during a turn. Plotting course, which allows a crew member to make an astrogation or perception check to remove a setback dice from a check per success. Co-pilot, which allows a crew member to make a piloting check to downgrade the difficulty of the pilot's check once per success. Jamming, which allows a crew member to disrupt an enemy's communication through the use of a computer's check. Boost shields, which allows a crew member to increase the defense rating of a zone by one for one round at the cost of a single point of system strain. Manual repair, which allows a crew member to use their athletic skill to perform repairs. Fire discipline, which allows a crew member to use their leadership or discipline skill to assist gunners with boost dice and allowing them to cause system strain to target vehicles. Scan the enemy, which allows a crew member to use their perception skill to learn more about a vehicle's weaponry, modifications, system strain and hull trauma. Slice the enemy's systems, which allows a crew member to use their computer skill to affect certain components aboard an enemy vehicle. And lastly, spoof missiles, which allows a crew member to use their computers or vigilance skill to disrupt the tracking systems of incoming missiles. Thank you, mate. You're perfectly welcome, sir. But let's not forget about our crazy dome-topped astromech friends. In addition to being able to perform damage control, plot course, co-pilot, boost shields, scan the enemy and spoof missile actions... Astromechs can also perform the watch your back action, which allows them to make a computer's check to identify and prioritise threats, thus providing the pilot with a plus one defence to a single zone per success rolled. They can also perform the target lock action, which allows the astromech to provide additional boost dice to a pilot when they make a gunnery check. Which brings me to the final and most important element of vehicle combat, performing a combat check with a vehicle weapon. There are many vehicle-mounted weapons, including blaster cannons, iron weapons, laser weapons, tractor beams and ordnance, with the latter being the preferred weapon of choice for hotshot farm boys, apparently. Firing of vehicles' weapons is slightly different to that of firing personal weapons, but follows the same principle in that you use a skill, normally gunnery, to fire the vehicle weapons. Vehicle-mounted weapons in the Star Wars role-playing game are considered to be fitted with basic targeting computers and guidance systems, and so the difficulty to fire any weapon is not based on range, but on the size of the target being fired upon. The rules follow the basic principle that the bigger the vehicle is, the easier it is to hit, and the smaller the vehicle is, the harder it is to hit. If a vehicle is firing at a target of the same size, or with a silhouette difference of one larger or smaller than itself, the difficulty of the gunnery check is average, or two purple dice. If a vehicle is firing at a target two or more silhouette sizes larger than itself, the difficulty of the gunnery check is easy, or one purple dice. 
Comparatively, if a vehicle is firing at a target two silhouette sizes smaller than itself, the difficulty of the gunnery check is hard, or three purple dice. Three silhouette sizes smaller than itself, the difficulty of the gunnery check is daunting, or four purple dice. And lastly, four silhouette sizes smaller than itself, the difficulty of the gunnery check is formidable, or five purple dice. The limiting factor of firing a vehicle weapon is that it cannot be fired further than its maximum range, which is the range listed under the vehicle's weapon statistic. The only exception here is that of ordnance weapons, which do have special rules, namely the guided and blast qualities. The guided quality is activated using three advantages and is a quality which allows a weapon with this quality that misses its attack to come about and have another crack at hitting the intended target. The difficulty is based on the target's silhouettes. The silhouette of the missile is zero, and its skill is based on the qualities listing. So a proton torpedo with guided two weapon quality would make a missed attack with two ability or two green dice. This attack occurs at the end of the round, so it's possible that a crew member of any given vessel can spoof the missile or may even be able to attack it. The other quality is that of blast, and it's a little bit trickier, but can be used to great effect, especially against minion groups of vehicles. Oh, finally. I thought you'd totally forgotten about that. Don't you think the engine needs looking at, M8? Of course, sir. Now, going back to the blast quality. The quality is normally activated for the cost of two advantages, but the secret here is that even if you miss, you can still activate the quality by spending three advantages instead of the normal two. An interesting thing to note, though, is that only targets that are engaged with the original target can be affected with the blast quality. This would normally include crew in an open-aired speeder or skiff, or vehicles that are docked with a targeted vehicle. It does not, however, include vehicles which are both within the close-range band. After all, it's close-range, not engaged. Which brings me back to minion groups. Although not engaged, according to the sidebars listed in each of the core rulebooks pertaining to the subject, vehicles in minion groups are fighting in close formation and fight as a single group. Although it's a house rule, minion vehicle groups could be considered close enough together to be affected by the blast quality. Now, your game master, though, should be the ultimate arbiter on that decision. There are obviously many abilities and talents which can play into vehicle combat, such as full throttle to increase the speed of your vehicle, solid repairs to keep your vehicle in working order during combat, tricky target to make your ship that much harder to hit, overwhelmed defences to reduce the targeted vehicle's defence zones, and even force-related talents, such as intuitive evasion, where you can commit force dice to upgrade the difficulty to fire at your vehicle in combat. So there you have it. That's the basics of vehicle combat. Pretty easy, huh? That's strange. Nobody else knows we're here. Surprise is hardly the word for it, Horak. I thought we had an arrangement. I just want to understand that the piece you stole from the Imperial Vaults on Dominus belongs, well, elsewhere. Look, just hang on, Horak. Well, you've got the hang of vehicle combat. Next time, we'll take a look at something less violent, but more cunning, shall we say, where we'll discuss social combat. 
Thank you, gentle being, for listening to Gaming Tidbits with GM Hooley. We hope that you've enjoyed your stay. Please come again soon, won't you? If you have a question that you would like answered by GM Hooley, please contact us via the most archaic of technologies, email at gmhooley at d20radio.com. Goodbye. Love it, Hooley. Excellent work. Excellent work. Oh, man. I'm I'm so excited to see what else he wants, what else he's going to do. He's actually got his own thread on the forums for people to make requests. You know, you can also make requests um, on the on the Order 66 podcast Facebook page. Um, mm. And uh, if you guys want Hooli to discuss a specific tidbit or a piece of rules knowledge, get it up there. So speaking of tidbits, um, I think it's time to get into the meat of tonight's show. Do you all agree? Totally concur. Yes, for sure. We have much concurrence, so let's concur this. Tonight, we are talking about the Republic of Old. You know, guys, we, we focus a lot on on GM advice on the show. Um, you know, we've had episodes about structuring encounters, uh, crafting adventurous campaigns, dealing with problem players, uh, and, and, and making your games memorable. But, but through it all, there is one aspect of campaign creation that we've really only brushed upon, uh, mentioned in passing, uh, you know, like the proverbial smuggler's transport in the night. This is the subject of era. Not error, but era. We talk a lot about error. <laughs> mm. <laughs> By era, we mean the chosen setting of your Star Wars campaign. The films, television shows, and the canon novels and comics have given us three very distinct eras to play in, one of which the core rulebooks focus on. But the wealth and history of the Star Wars Legends material, books, comics, and video games have given us even more. And tonight... We're going to zero in on a requested era setting, requested by numerous fans on Facebook and on our forums. One of the most popular eras for Star Wars, introduced by some phenomenal video games and built upon by novels, comics, and more video games. (laughs) And this is the era of the Old Republic. Tonight, we're going to talk about playing and running games in this era. We're going to dig into the best campaign and adventure aspects to include in your Old Republic games, the core themes that make it what it is, and how to use FFG's narrative dice system best in this setting. So since your creepy Sith mask slash helmet tight, Gamer Nation, be at one with the unbridled force as we deal out the Pazak cards of the Old Republic campaign setting tonight on your Order 66 podcast. So, Phil, you've probably got more experience running this setting than any one of us. <laughs> yes and no. I'm certainly th- I'm certainly probably one of the most familiar with it, especially from the aspect of the video games. Okay, well then, mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, you're you so you are our resident EU slash Legends encyclopedia. I mean, I guess the first thing I want to ask about it is, is is really a question of canon. I mean, we've got, mm. this is kind of a weird discussion for a few reasons, yeah? It is, it is. And it all goes back to Disney. All right, folks, here's the deal. The vast majority of Star Wars lore in the older public timeline is now no longer canon. It is classified as Legends material. 
stories and history that are not officially a part of the saga anymore. Now, does this mean you can't use it in your games? Hell no. Considering this time period, too, it's easy to treat this almost as a mythic history or a story told by a campfire. Is it true? Who knows? More importantly, who cares? It's badass. It's fun. (laughs) This means that the history we're primarily referring to tonight is one that isn't canon. So we just want to point that out, though canon history will also be included. You know, kind of one way to think about all this is sort of think about the classic mythic legends of lore. You know, think about King Arthur, think about, um, you know, the, the Norse mythologies, the Greek mythologies, the Greek heroes, you know, the, the, the Odyssey, the Iliad, that sort of thing. Yeah. It kind of gives you a frame of reference. Some of those legends and stories are based in fact. And as Dave Filoni wills, occasionally things from these old, you know, legends eras are making it back into canon it's it's a great source material and it's a really fun era to play in it's one of the most enjoyable aspects about watching the the new animated series is seeing what parts of the legend stuff they're now okay oh that's canon again that's canon again <laughs> it's back. Mm-hmm. yeah i i do have a question i want to call an audible if i can and Please. that is don't they doesn't disney recognize the swotor mmo as canon Nope. Oh, it is wow. not canon. It is a moneymaker, but it is not canon. Yeah. Backed by LucasArts, but not by Disney. Interesting. Yeah, it's yeah. very, very interesting. And, I mean, is it even technically backed by LucasArts? I mean, LucasArts is gone. And Lucasfilm. Yeah. Um, it's a Lucasfilm thing. Lu- Lucasfilm, yeah, yeah, I guess. It's backed by Lucasfilm. Um, but... But yeah, no. So yeah, it, it's it. I, you know, I re- I did my I did a fair bit of research for the show notes tonight, and I was kind of shocked to realize that 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 Star Wars: The Old Republic is not canon, and that's a shame because there's, there's some amazing stuff in there, some amazing storytelling that's happened. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> doesn't mean you can't draw on it. Doesn't mean you can't use it. Doesn't mean you can't treat it like canon, but it is not official canon. So yeah. Okay, so Darren. Like when when you and I were talking and, and you know batting around ideas for your your guest host episode um, and the things we were talking about, you you latched onto this idea pretty strong. It's like you know choosing to play in this era of, of the old republic is is a very strong choice and a very meaningful choice for a, a lot of players. Um, you know, but for those who aren't familiar, you know, I want I want us to start by talking about what era in this fictional universe we're talking about, but more importantly, why play in it? What, what draw, what made you go, Oh, let's talk about that. What, what draws you to this era so much? It's interesting because one of the things I love about, uh, the old Republic is currently in the sanctioned movies that are out. Technology has been lost. Um, because in the past, it seems like technology, according to old Canon, um, was more advanced, which is, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, certain specs like the archaeologist that are currently in the FFG Star Wars RPG are so appealing um, to myself is going back and finding old things that were once ancient and powerful. So there's a lot of mysticism, like you sort of said, that really excite me. Um, also, there's, you know, the big epic, you know, empires and republic on a scale that is much more than just, um, it feels larger, grander. I think, I think what Phil said a moment ago, mythic, you know what I mean? 
Um, mm-hmm. that, that's like what I associate with this era. But I don't know. I mean, I mean, and Phil, I mean, chime in here, man. There's like an allure that building on what Darren said, you know, that, that, you know, this, I, I, I have to check myself. I keep calling it the KOTOR era because for the longest time we just all referred to it as the Knights of the Old Republic era because of the KOTOR video games. But, mm-hmm. but now people are really starting to call it the Old Republic era. I'm sure, era, I'm sure in no small part to the MMO. But I mean, it's like, I don't know, man, there's this mythic, like Darren said, this history, but there's almost like this blank slate feel, you know what I mean? Oh yeah, you can really do anything you want to in this era, and it all fits. Yeah. You know, they, they love that blank slate feel. It gives them access to technology and threats that are common to Star Wars, because it's, it's pretty much been established that, even over the course of thousands of years, the basic technologies really haven't changed. There's still hyperdrives, there's still blasters, obviously there's still lightsabers, but, you know, yeah, walkers. But, but to Darren's point, there's like, there's complicated stuff that's been lost. I mean, if we, especially if we get into the KOTOR games, like, you know, like, you know, you know, star map technology and, you know, into star forges and things like that, that have, mm. have just been lost. But at the same time, Darren, on the opposite end, there's a few things that are different. Like, you know, there's no longer a need for holonet buoys, you know, which were essential to hyperdrive in the old days. I mean, oh, so it's yeah. like it's like some things have improved, but there's almost also so much that's been lost, and it's so blank, it's so open. Um, it's like there's just so much you can do with it. Um, but I want to I want to get into these themes and these ideas in a bit. But first, I think it's pertinent, guys. Maybe we educate some listeners who may not be too familiar with it, with what this era is in terms of its timeline and its its big events. Mm. Especially depending upon how far back you want to go. Well, right. talk to me about that. Well, okay. So the era's big, really big. You know, it arguably goes back to 25,000 years before the Battle of Yavin to about 1,000 years before the Battle of Yavin. Uh, and then one of the big recurring themes in which makes this so popular is an area where fledgling Jedi Order has expanded and takes a real role in the galaxy, becoming the Jedi Order of Legend. Uh, the Galactic Republic is formed, eventually expanding to half the galaxy. Numerous wars with the Sith have been fought, with Force users on both sides struggling for supremacy. Now, we're not going to waste time going over the detailed histories here, but there are some big events that we really should touch upon. Yeah, the, the first... first go, go ahead. First of which is the formation of the Republic. Yes. Now, this is from about 25,000 years before to at least 6,000 years before ago, you know, before the Battle of Yavin, or even earlier. Um, at some point, you know, depending on canon versus legends, the Republic is formed within this time period. The defining thing about the Old Republic versus the Republic, as we see in the prequels, is that the Old Republic wasn't so much a benevolent bureaucracy that expanded due to systems wanting to join for good economic reasons. The Old Republic fought a lot of wars, lots of them. The reorganization of the Old Republic into the Republic occurred around about 1,032 years before the Battle of Yavin. This marked the end of the Sith as an empire and a millennia of relative peace for the Republic. Yeah. So there's that formation of the Republic. Um, The other big point for me um, is, uh, and this is something that we're seeing actually has been introduced very heavily in the new canon, um, is this period of time was also marked by a fight against slavery. Um, in, in the canon, uh, the Old Republic declared slavery illegal, and they expected other civilizations of the galaxy to comply. And this actually led to uh, a pretty nasty war with the Zygarians, um, 
because the Zygerian Empire was actually built upon slavery. Um, so mm-hmm. the Zygerians refused to comply, and that forced the Republic and the Jedi to to intervene in a war, which was really nasty. Um, and the Empire got shattered. Um, Zygerians got l- pretty much limited to their own homeworld, um, and ultimately the you know the Republic won. Um, and at that point, slavery was officially outlawed in the Republic, and and the the practice was forced underground or on the fringes of the galaxy outside of Republic control. And um, you know that's something that. Uh, you know, we all know at some point the Republic outlawed slavery, but the actual canon behind that and the the rather intensive fight to do so um, is something that's newly been added to the canon. And it's a really intriguing set piece, I think, is important to note for the history of the Old Republic era. Mm. What else, Darren? So the Mandalorian Wars, um, uh... my favorite, um, <laughs> come into contact with the Mandalorians. Uh, in a series of battles and wars that were fought against them, um, as they had little regard for the Republic and the Jedi values, um, or the Sith values for that matter, of protecting the weak or the innocent, uh, the infamous Darksaber is one of the items of note um, stolen from the Jedi Temple before the fall of the Old Republic, becoming a symbol of leadership and victory for the Mandalorians, which many of us have seen in the Rebels episodes um, where Sabine uses yeah. One of those, which is pretty amazing. And what the Clone Wars episodes previously from back from the Clone Wars series, uh, it played a key point as well. Um, That's right. So, yeah, the like, and when we'll talk about this, but like Mando's baby, Mando's. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but what about what about the Dark Age? Because and now this is what they're officially calling it too now, and it's part of canon. Ah, so that's where that name came from. Mm hmm. Well, this is the lengthy period of time in the Old Republic was marked by continued wars against the Sith Empire, uh, sometimes known as the Jedi-Sith War, sometimes known as the Great Galactic War, sometimes known as the Jedi-Civil War. Yeah. It all happens. This is basically the time frame that encapsulates the Old Republic video games. Yeah. Now, this is, this is in canon, sometime before 6000 BBY where a faction of Jedi broke away from the Order to follow the Dark Side. Known as the Hundred Year Darkness, this faction actually built a shrine on Coruscant and called themselves the Sith. Though ultimately defeated and exiled to the darkest, farthest reaches of the galaxy, they eventually returned with a vengeance, invading the Republic in a devastating and lengthy war. Both sides constructed massive superweapons powered by kyber crystals capable of mass destruction. Coruscant was overtaken, then reclaimed, and at one point, the Sith Empire controlled the majority of the galaxy. Eventually, in no small part due to the infighting, the Sith Empire fell and was completely destroyed around about 1,032 years before the Battle of Yavin. The Old Republic, shattered from so much war, reformed into the modern democracy we come to know in the movies and, and TV shows. Now, the few remaining Sith ultimately destroyed themselves the only survivor being Darth Bane, who establishes the rule of two. And this is actually still canon. I was thrilled in research to find out that Darth Bane and the rule of two is still canon. Um, <laughs> um, but but it is, and that's awesome. Because it explains so much. It explains why the Sith went unnoticed for so long. It explains Palpatine, and it explains a lot of his behaviors. And, and I really, really like that. Well, they kind of at least had to keep the rule of two because that gets established in episode one. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, you know, but it, it's a different time. You know, this is before all that. This is that they're open. They're out there. Um, but okay, guys. I mean, like, you know, we, we've gone through a very rough history lesson here. We've talked about some key features that are a part of, of canon and sort of, I, I don't mean, I don't even want to say expanded canon or legends, like sort of almost canon legends, you know, like the, the Star Wars The Old Republic video game. Um, but, you know, despite all this, you know, FFG still has no official source book that, you know, gamers can use to flesh out the details of this world. What, mm. what options are out there for people who are unfamiliar with this era and might be intrigued by it? Darren, you want to take the first one? Yeah, well... I mean, since they're, they're the video games. I mean, it all started with video games like Knights of the Old Republic, followed by the sequel KOTOR 2, and then SWOTOR, RPG, which is my personal favorite, uh, still being played by tens of thousands of people, including myself as a last holdout. Um, <laughs> incredible, <laughs> incredible comic books were written, to be sure. Um, like, you should check out the Knights of the Old Republic series written by uh, John Jackson Miller. Yeah. It's a great um, series too. It takes that place actually is. I don't bef- it takes place slightly before the first Knights of the Old Republic video game. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Old Republic Encyclopedia um, by DK. Um, it's got 352 pages in a hardbound format detailing the basics about the Star Wars, the Old Republic um, RPG, and it's a solid source for basics of the era, including major events, personages, and even vehicles. Yeah. I picked that thing up. It is a it is an absolute gold mine. It is an absolute gold mine. Yeah, it's um, it, it's one that I haven't had the chance to get on my shelf yet. I've read it, I've thumbed through it, but I need to get it. Um, it's also beautiful. <laughs> oh, it totally is. Yeah, glorious. D D K those D K encyclopedias they do a good job. They do a great job, and they're you know they have really good artwork or photos as well, so it's really good. Yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> what? Nothing. Nothing. Just a good. It's it's a good source. Yeah, it it is. Um, you know, and I I got a second the John Jackson Miller work, and um, the, you know, the Knights of the Old Republic, which was really the introduction video game that introduced the entire world to this era. Like, do you guys know that video game has actually been ported to the iPad now? It has an Android too. And Android. Um, it's like tablet exclusive, but it's um. Dude, it's actually a very wonderful and faithful port. They actually ironed out some of the more common bugs, and it's really cheap too. Um, and it's like, yeah, it's like ten bucks. Yeah, it's like ten bucks for the full game. It's fantastic. What? Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm 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 tempted to drop it because it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. <laughs> so, well, okay. Look, listeners, you guys can check out the comics. You can play the video games. You can you can browse Wikipedia until your heart's content. But when deciding to actually run a game set in this era, I do think there's some common core themes um, that are extremely important and some really basic elements I think that we should go over and and, and consider. I want to talk about making an Old Republic campaign. And, you know, for me, um, it all starts with themes. You know, I've talked about this when we talk about campaign building before, but, you know, Star Wars is a very theme-focused setting. There's underlying core themes that come up again and again and again. And I think the Old Republic era presents some really common and powerful underlying themes that should be at the heart of any Old Republic game that you as a GM run or write. And, And whether your players realize it or not, 
these are the themes that draw them into this era, that make them want to play in it. Um, so I know we've got a few in the show notes, and so maybe we can talk about them. Uh, what, what, are, sure. what are some of the core themes that you guys really associate with the Old Republic era? Well, there's, first of all, the theme of unification. The actual building and expansion of the Republic, you know, you, you play as characters seeking out new worlds and new civilizations and boldly going where no Jedi has gone before. Wait a second. Wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, this is a phenomenal era for exploration. So much of the galaxy was uncharted and the fledging Republic was focused on expansion theme of unifying a large galactic government and spreading its influence is a very strong one and it can be a fun one to play i mean we made we just made the joke about it but if you want an era where you could kind of have a kind of a star trek feel to your star wars game this is a fun this is a fun theme to take a hold of and and play around with because you got to figure that a lot of these regions, even even the the kind of colonial regions and the mid rim regions, those aren't fully explored in these areas. First contact. Era. Yeah. You know, it it takes some time. You know, to, to just go out there. So if you're looking for some inspiration for unification stuff, look at old Star Trek episodes and scrub out the fact that you have access to transporters. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is Star Wars first contact. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> I mean, it's either that or Star Wars The Final Frontier, and that's just, eh. oh. what does God need with a starship? <laughs> but you go to Star Wars if I, you know, what does the Force need with a starship? <laughs> yeah, but the problem is there, you might actually get an answer. Yeah, that's very, that's very true. That's very true. Yeah, that's okay, so unification, one theme. What else? So, epic struggles of light over dark, which kind of is part of unification if you think about it. While you're traveling around the galaxy trying to meet new planets, you might actually run into opposition. (laughs) So, the most notable player desirable themes in the Old Republic era is this. It was a legendary time of legendary people with epic struggles and wars for the very fate of the galaxy. The Sith are real. They're organized. They're vastly frightening threat who won't stop until they control the entire galaxy. Thousands of lightsabers flash on the battlefield. Armadas tear each other to pieces. For epic warfare um, with lots of lightsabers, this is the era. Mm -hmm. And it also kind of rolls back into unification. What if you go to a planet where the Sith have already started to start their uh, negotiations? And the Jedi and the Sith both have to convince this world that they're important. Um, This is actually a pretty common theme in the... um, video game, the MMORPG um, that is out. And I really like this aspect because it takes some of the straight up I'm going to kill the Sith to a more I have to figure out a way to impress these people without killing the Sith and proving I'm not a barbarian. (laughs) (laughs) Yup. Yup. But, you know, if you want your epic struggle of light over dark, your mass combat, um, you want to cut down Sith acolytes or um, bewilder Jedi apprentices. This is this is the era for you. Yeah. Um, again, I go back to that word Phil used: mythic. Right. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's epic. Now, 
the the big third theme for the older public era for me relates to what you just said, Darren, and then again relates back to Phil's the, the ideas Phil talked about in the unification theme, and that is a very strong theme of mystery. There is so much unwritten time that exists in this era, and as a result, you know, as GMs, we're we're less constrained by the Star Wars canon or even Legends material than in any other era, and you know exploring that new frontier, finding new things. There's this strong element of the unknown, you know, I mean, that's facing the player characters all the time. I mean, outside the meta mystery um, of the era. Um, you know, when it comes to the, 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 the discovering the Sith and the Sith Wars and those epic struggles, you know, this is a, a group, the Sith Empire, that was on their own for a really long time and discovered all these crazy secrets of the dark side and built a massive empire and armada and then mysteriously just returned back to the galaxy. And no one knows where they came from initially when they show up. And it's a huge deal. It's a huge mystery. So... You know, that that's the, the other core theme I adore about this setting. So, okay, with these themes in mind, guys, I want to put these into practice. Let's let's uh, expand our, our GM muscles a little bit, and let's talk about how these themes can lead us to some good campaign ideas uh, for the Old Republic era. Some hooks, some seeds for plots uh, that'll make for really good meat for your games. Absolutely. Um, yeah. The biggest campaign idea is the Sith Wars. Yeah. And folks want to play in this area. Thousands of red lightsaber-wielding Sith against an army of Jedi. You've literally got an entire empire devoted to the dark side, openly, who is as all-powerful, if not more, than the Old Republic. Things are going to get crazy. And defending your home against an onslaught of dark side-worshipping fanatics makes for some great gaming stories. <laughs> now, and don't forget that there are also millions of non-Jedi fighting in these wars, too, especially in the Great Galactic War, the, the SWOTOR time frame. Groups of Old Republic soldiers like Havoc Squad were formed, around, uh, were formed around this time to fight many battles that no Jedi could, and who weren't held back by the Jedi's code of rigid mor moralities. So you can have some real fun adventures uh, just playing Republic troops in, in this time frame, too. Absolutely. Well, yeah, and that kind of leads into another really great possibility in the Sith Wars, and that is, we've talked about playing Darksiders in previous episodes. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. You could play a Darksider group. This Absolutely. would be the perfect era for it. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And when you consider how expansive the Sith Empire was and all the worlds that sort of fell under their umbrella, it wasn't like they came from the nether reaches of the galaxy with their entire army. Every world they conquered, they gained more followers, more people joined, right? Because people like a winner and, <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and you know, oh my gosh, well, okay, let, let's go ahead and do this. That means that you've got people on the front lines that are a part of the Sith Empire, but that doesn't mean they're dark side acolytes. It doesn't mean they even really truly are bad people. They're just fighting the fight for the predominant power in the galaxy. And, you know, the Sith aren't stupid, too. They're good politicians. And so, at the same time, maybe you've got a world that's struggling in a civil war or dealing with an alien threat that's, you know, imposed upon them. The Sith can come in, end the threat, end the war, and, be, and, and appear as the saviors, and all of a sudden they have a whole new system that's pledged, that's pledged their allegiance to the Sith Empire. And the people in that system are now fighting for that empire. That doesn't necessarily mean they're bad people. It just means that they see the Sith genuinely as 
you know, the saviors. And so you've got some really interesting potential there. Really mm-hmm. interesting. And, and I guess the point I'm making is you can be fighting for the Sith Empire without being dark yourself, if that makes sense. Yeah. Or you could just be dark and go full dark, and that's fine. <laughs> okay, so the Sith Wars. So, okay, Darren, based on your earlier statement, you want to hit us up with the next seed? Oh, man. Mando love. <laughs> Nothing better than Mando love. It's like hot. Wrong. Some Mando on Mando love. Mando on Mando love is my favorite. Um, more than any other era, if you love Mandalorians as threats, this is the era for you, or for me particularly. <laughs> The Mandalorian Wars are a huge feature of the Old Republic, similar to the Sith Wars, just without lightsabers. And don't underestimate them. Instead, you've got an army of the best-trained warriors in the galaxy who drink up conquest and glory in battle, who believe only the strong should survive, and they're backed up by jetpacks, massive war droids, and just pure grit, not to mention a whole cadre of special tools and weapons. Um, where the Sith Wars are epic, the Mando Wars are gritty, and you can just pick your poison. <laughs> and there's so many different variations of Mando group campaign ideas. It's almost mind-boggling. Well, it seems like, I mean, and just from a, from a historical standpoint, I mean, the Mandalorian Empire was at its height during this era. And it, this era is what gave us even insight really into the Mandalorian culture for the first time. You know, the idea of having a Mandalore, you know what I mean? And the various, uh, you know, sects and groups and clans uh, within the Mandalorian Empire and all that, you know, political wartime shenaniganry that happened. I mean, you could have just a pure Mando campaign where the players are Mandos and they're fighting against Mandos. And <laughs> I mean, that's totally within reason. Man, the great Absolutely. hunt. Yeah, the great hunt, dude. Mm. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, there's other ideas, too, guys. There's a ton of stuff to play with here. I mean, with, with some of the newer canon, slavery is now a huge theme in this era. Because this era is now, from a canon perspective, what solidified the Old Republic's stance, and, and obviously the New Republic's, or the, the, the Republic's stance against slavery. The fight to outlaw it is a huge feature of this era now. And, you know, maybe maybe the party's fighting the Zagarian Empire. Maybe they're they're rooting to stamp out slavery's pervading influence and, pa- and practice. Um, you know, and other seeds can be spread from the other ideas we've talked about. You know, the concept earlier really that we said, you know, of, of you know, uh, uh, Star Wars, the final frontier, you know, discovery. Um, you know, maybe the party's, you know, an advanced you know, exploration squad seeking out new worlds to, you know, expose to the Republic. Um, maybe... Maybe the party discovers the edges of the Sith Empire before the Sith have actually returned, like pre-Star Wars The Old Republic, okay? Um, Maybe they find alternate and wild force traditions out there. Maybe they discover pockets of the galaxy caught in a brutal civil war and has no idea of a larger galactic struggle going on in the midst of the Sith Wars. Um, I mean, it's it's open season. Go nuts. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, it's amazing. So, you know, I, uh, you know, um, I have to call it Nenru is in chat. He says, he says a great theme and a question for the PCs is the fact that there isn't just the Sith. There are also the Imperial people. And this is kind of what I was talking about earlier. You can't just have your heroes defeat lightsaber wielders. Um, as the game's timeline says, the Imperials believe in their leadership. So how do you convert them? You know what I mean? That's an excellent point. 
mm-hmm. because they're, I mean, they'll have their own form of security agents, their own form of soldiers, just as good as Republic Havoc Squad. Uh, Imperial Intelligence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cypher 9. <laughs> yep. My favorite. Yep. You know, this is like one of the best areas for 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 talky PCs as well. I mean, you've got you know the the the, the war is ravaging the old republic. The Senate, what 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 version of it there was back then, is falling apart. I mean, you you can be a Jedi or a senator or a diplomat or a noble, um, just sent to speak to people. You know, that are on the edge of leaving the republic and thinking of going over to the Sith, and just trying to keep them in the fold. Um, another good suggestion in chat. So. Good stuff. And it, yeah, and it makes it for really good party mix-ups. I mean, if you want to have a bounty hunter with a senator as a bodyguard hired plus a Jedi, I mean, you could really mix up your group uh, and have a really great combination of things that you might not normally get in just any era. It's a very it's a very easy era to make a scenario where if you guys listen to our previous episode, the third question, where the third question is answered. Why is the party here? Why is the party working together? What unifying goal does every PC have? You can create 700 scenarios that answer that question in this era so easily. And none of them are going to be the same. So, you know, part of that's because it's such a huge era. But the other is because there's such a wealth of wonderful things going on. And the way the balance of power works in this particular time period, you know, there's light and there's dark. But for the people working for those factions, the line's not always as clear cut. So it can be very interesting. Very interesting. So, okay, guys, those are some good seeds. We've talked about, you know, campaign ideas. We talked about themes. That's great. But I do think it's important to get into some crunch here and actually talk about um, a series of common standards in the Old Republic era that I think uh, GMs running in this era need to cement in their minds before even planning out a campaign things that are for lack of a better term quote unquote facts you know of this era that you need to remind yourself of maybe write on a sticky or a a note card and paste in the front of your campaign book so that you're constantly referring back to it every time you're planning out your campaign or sessions um these are a few Mm. key things that that are, are really important and that really separate this era from the other eras well let's start with the first one and the one that, again, is probably one of the reasons why this era is so popular. Jedi are everywhere. Hmm. The Jedi Order was at its height during this time period. They were known around the galaxy. They're publicly using their powers at all points. So that you don't have to hide it like you do in the Imperial time, in the time of the Galactic Civil War. Uh, you know, it, if you do that during then, it gets you a one-way ticket to Fugitive on the Empire status. In this era, it's really kind of expected. <laughs> People be flinging force powers around. <laughs> Ain't no thing. Ain't no thing. Check out my lightsaber. Ain't it cool? <laughs> Check out this, what I can do with my mind. Go do my mind. Isn't that yeah. awesome? Check that out. Why don't you pull me some Covathier in a fifth sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Jedi are everywhere. I got it. I got it. What What's next? B- facts for this era. Going to the dark is a real choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's nothing stopping you from going pure dark side. Having a PC party, like I mentioned earlier, who are part of the Sith Empire. 
or even decide to change allegiances. You could actually start with an entire party of darksiders and have them try to go towards the light or, you know, the gray. There are so many different types of force traditions between the Jedi and the Sith. It's a kaleidoscope of options. Um, so yeah, going dark is a viable thing. And from your perspective, going dark and staying that way might actually be the true path. That's interesting. Okay, so Darren, what about what about the foot soldiers of that true path? Because the this next point, this next fact of the era, I think is another important one uh, for GMs. A little bit, little crunchy though. Yeah, well, the faceless troopers. I really like the Sith troopers. Uh, Stormtroopers don't exist during this era, but Sith troopers do. And in this time period, they're treated much the same. They're faceless, mirrored, armored shock troopers, mirror-faced armored shock troopers who represent the might of the Sith Empire through sheer numbers and terror. We all know that um, what niche stormtroopers occupy in the Star Wars world um, in regular um, movies that are out. But in this era, you can file off the storm and replace it with Sith. It's the same threat. It's the same niche. All you've done is, you know, filed off the serial number there and you've got yourself a Sith trooper instead of a stormtrooper. Okay. Um, if you're fighting on the opposite side, Republic troopers fill in the same role for uh, Sith characters. Yep. So, Bo- Both sides have faceless troopers. And I think that's something that hasn't been lost in this era. The, the last fact I think it's important for GMs to consider, and this again is something that's really only touched on, or there's a, it's, it's a shadow of itself in the, the dark times and beyond era of, of Star Wars. Nobility is kind of a big deal in the Old Republic. Um, and you have to keep in mind that the bureaucratic democracy of the Republic that we know from the films, it, it's not there yet. I mean, the, the, you know, before the Reformation, the Old Republic, in terms of the way it functioned, was very different um, bureaucratically and structurally from how the Republic we know functioned. There was a Senate, but it didn't, it, it wasn't this benevolent democracy like we know of. Um, it was a lot, the Old Republic was a lot more feudal in terms of its organization structure. There are queens, there are lords, there are ladies, there are noble houses, barons, dukes, governors. Um, they're, they're, they're allied and their systems are allied into this republic of common ideals and they, they send representatives to the Senate and those are senators and they vote on, on issues of galactic importance. But, but, you know, those noble houses largely retain direct control regionally over their systems. Um, and that, that history of Star Wars in, in the past has left a lot of holdovers into the quote-unquote modern uh, era of Star Wars that we're also familiar with, uh, you know, at, at least in terms of the names it provides. That's why Naboo still has a queen. You know, it's an elected position, but it's important we have a queen, right? <laughs> you know, you've got, you've got systems like Alderaan where, you know, you really do have a ruling class family that never left the ruling of it, you know? Um, <laughs> e- e- even in terms of imperial... Uh, uh, in terms of, of Dark Times era imperial labels, you have governors, you have, in some cases, dukes or barons, um, and the title of moth, you know. And while these are often appointed positions, um, there's still a fair bit of a hegemony that exists, um, a lot of nepotism. 
um, and those titles are that are uh, given such gravitas are holdovers from this era where those titles really actually did mean something and they were part of your lineage. And mm. that, you know, what was it? One of you said earlier, the idea of, uh, Phil, you said thinking of this era kind of like the, you know, King Arthur and the Knights of the Old Republic, you know, right? <laughs> sure. Sure. And th- that's a very accurate analogy. And that, that idea of feudalism and feudal nobility is a huge fact of this time period. And as a GM, you really need to consider that because that's not a normal part of the Star Wars eras that we're used to. And it can give you a lot of fun and a lot of seeds and a lot of easy NPCs for your games. Yeah. And a lot of twists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could be in the old Republic and just because the Lords and ladies are all from the same planet doesn't mean they get along. Exactly. You know, uh, much like King Arthur, there was always, there was trouble in his court. Um, you're going to have those kinds of seeds and those kinds of ideas that you can, yeah, it's limitless. It's really amazing. Well, King Arthur's trouble was the fact that Lancelot couldn't keep it in his pants, but I'm just saying. Well, yeah. <laughs> of course, the same thing could happen here. You know, you know, it's, it, it, it is, it is, it's there. It's there. Details. 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 Okay, um, so with these facts in mind, um, let's transition a bit, guys, to talk about actually using FFG's system to run in the Old Republic. We've talked about history at this point. We've talked about themes, ideas, all that. And hopefully, listeners, you're getting some strong inklings of kind of what to pull together in an Old Republic game. Um, but when you are running an Old Republic game in this system, guys, what, if any, changes do GMs need to make what do they need to consider from running a game in the FFG Star Wars system? Well, first of all, behold the power of reskin. <laughs> okay, so obviously the core rule books are covering the Dark Times era up into the Rebellion era, including its threats. But that's where the reskin comes in. Storm's troopers are Sith troopers, literally. Continue the filing off and keep the stats the same. Instead of white laminate armor, it's gray and black laminate armor. No other modifications are really needed. Yeah. Force and Destiny gave us this awesome set of rules for making Inquisitors. Well, you can use those exact same rules for making Sith Warriors. The counterpoints to the Jedi Knights, the Inquisitors are deadly and wonderful foes for your modern era, modern era quote-unquote, games. All you have to do is literally just file off those serial numbers as well, put them in Sith robes, maybe a creepy mask, and boom, you've got a well-balanced lightsaber-wielding Sith acolyte or Sith warrior. Yeah. And then you got everything else. TIE fighters become Sith fighters. Star destroyers become Sith capital ships. Either Star Dreadnoughts or, well, Sith Star Destroyers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They really didn't file off those names too much. No. Um, you don't need to craft up new stat blocks or go crazy. Just use what you have. Give it a new paint job, and you're ready to go. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Okay, so what about the economy and items? Because, like, this is something else as I was really planning for this episode, I started thinking about um, when it comes to outfitting your players and your threats, um, a lot of the same rules that we have apply. But there are a few exceptions, are there not, gentlemen, that you may want to consider as a GM? <laughs> mm-hmm. For sure. Lightsabers. They're yeah. still amazing symbols of power, but they're so much more common. <laughs> I mean, consider this. 
What this does not mean is that you should reduce the lightsaber crystal rarity or cost. I mean, this is game balance stuff you need to keep. What it does mean is that you could probably remove the restricted rating on the lightsaber crystals that you see and the related and related things that you're used that are, you know, Jedi and lightsaber making components. Yeah. Um, which makes much more sense in this era. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I fully agree. I mean, and I'm interested to get y'all's thoughts on that. I mean, because, you know, it, it, my, my opinion and my experience is, you know, don't mess with the cost necessarily of something as powerful as a lightsaber or its rarity. Um, it's just asking for disaster. <laughs> um, but one of the things that uh, I also see a little more malleability with considering the time period is heavy ordnance. Um, because th- this this is an era that's marked by warfare. And, you know, to get that, that epic feel of the Old Republic, it's really common to see a lot of heavy ordnance. I mean, in, in, in this period of war. Um, now, while costs, again, shouldn't change, you might want to consider relaxing the rarity, at, I mean, to a degree, and also definitely removing the restricted ratings on some things, like smaller grenades, heavier rifles, um, things aren't as lawfully bureaucratic in the old Republic. It's got a lot more of a wild west vibe in that sense. So, you know, may- maybe stuff will have a-, a-, a restricted rating, like in the heart of the core worlds, but even then in the mid rim and, you know, uh, outer core, you're probably going to see a lot less restriction on heavy ordnance, especially considering the fact that depending on where you're at in the old Republic setting, there's a freaking war going on. And people are going to outfit themselves and local constabulatories and law enforcement aren't going to bat an eye at somebody walking around with a heavy rifle for protection. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something else to consider. That and, the, of course, you know, the Sith Empire and Mandalorian background and seed ideas will have even less restriction. Yes, yes, much less restriction. I mean, if you're part of the Sith Empire, gosh, yeah. Um, that's going to be tremendous. No, okay, Darren. In terms of in terms of items and equipment, one of the things that fascinates me the most about this era, and it really fits with that nobility thing we were talking about, the art of fencing. Yes, that's you know, in keeping with the nobility theme, melee combat uh, combat is really common in this era. Uh, even non Jedi will usually be trained in the art of fencing. A lot of these nobles we previously spoke of, a lot of these senators and ambassadors um, will have um, be trained in, you know, vibra swords or ancient swords, um, things that have been passed down through generation to generation. There's going to be a lot more, those things are going to be a lot more common, a lot less rare uh, and barely restricted. Um, ceremonial swords, which, you know, could be a variety of different types of weapons, are carried by a number of people. And of course, a lot of styles that we would normally not have access to in, you know, maybe an Age of Rebellion game, we will have access to um, in in a Swartor game or a Old Republic game. Yeah, and it's something you see that melee combat, you know, in terms of, of everyone's got a melee weapon and they know how to use it, has really mm-hmm. fallen out of favor in the modern era of Star Wars. But yeah, man, this is... This is feudalism. It's the Knights of the Round, basically, and it's expected. 
and and a big part of the culture of the galaxy in this time. And you know, I, I think that's a you lot. You could of be fun. a Jedi running into a noble with really good fencing skills. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and find yourself outmatched. And there's 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 actually some some legend stories and comics and stuff that have been written about Jedi actually going to train with non Jedi just to master fencing skills. Um, you know the the in the legends uh, stories and can, the, the legends material the Tapani sector the Tapani nobles actually <laughs> developed uh, what did they call them like light blades I think or. They were light foils. Light foils, that's right. And they were basically weak-ass lightsabers. But they were <laughs> they were really good with them. And they were known to just punk Jedi in duels because they were just that good. And so a lot of Jedi during this time period in Legends would go train with the Tapani. And those guys aren't even force wielders. They're just really good swordsmen. And this is this is a thing, okay? Um so yeah, yeah. So keep stuff to keep in mind in terms of modifying equipment and items in this particular, you know, for the FFG system for this particular setting. What else? Phil, what about obligation, duty, morality? Well, well morality is morality. Morality is just, uh, th- at this point, is just kind of the balancing tool for force use, and destiny point use, and all that other good stuff. Yeah. Uh, but as far as obligation and duty goes, both obviously will fit. I mean, if you've got a smuggler character, it makes sense to have obligation. If you've got a Republic trooper, it makes sense to have duty. But don't forget that this, these are the, also the eras of the Jedi Order and the Sith Order. Whole thousand-member hierarchies. Your actions and accomplishments have a big impact on the support you get or the resources you're given by your respective order. It makes total sense for Jedi and Sith characters to have duty ratings or obligations to their orders, depending on the type of themes and play that you want to have. Uh, so, you know, it, 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 it totally makes sense to, to that a, the amount of support that a Jedi will get from the Jedi Council in the form of, like, you know, vehicles, special equipment... Uh, the detachments from possibly the Republic. You know, here's a here's a four man assault team. You know, here's here's a starship. Here's here's this. Here's that. You know, that all depends upon your duty rating with your with the order. Or if you're kind of a, a rebellious off the wall sort, you might have an obligation to your Jedi order, and that's something that you know as you're as you're out there adventuring the way you know and, and solving problems the way that you feel appropriate to them. It could cause problems and strife back with with your your superiors in the in the Jedi Order. Well, dude, we just talked about the idea of having a a group of players that are part of the Sith Empire. Maybe you have an mm-hmm. obligate. Maybe you have an obligation to the Sith Empire. Maybe mm-hmm. you know. Maybe maybe your world was was saved by them. Maybe it was peacefully annexed or or non peacefully annexed, and it's okay. You now have an obligation to serve the Empire, and especially for a group of players or a player that is wanting to move away from the Sith Empire, literally overcoming and getting rid of that obligation is a major milestone for that character and allows them to break away from being a part of the Empire if they don't wish to be. Absolutely, yeah. true believers for even the Sith Empire duty. I mean, if you're it, it, it garners a sense of responsibility in a dark side group. Um, which would normally probably fall apart. Um, so that obligation and that duty would be a great way, since morality won't really hold the dark side group together, <laughs> I think that those are really, really great tools, FFG rule set tools, to keep a dark side group from basically unraveling. Yeah. 
And they might have, they may have vying duty and obligation. That creates some great role playing moments. Well, keep in mind, morality is not like the the struggle is not to just constantly keep yourself to light side paragon. And this is one thing I love about morality. There's benefits to going dark. I mean, yeah, there are. There, there's concrete benefits. And it's like, you know what? I want that wound threshold increase, man. I'm going freaking dark. And we need to maintain the fact that we're dark and, and the power of the dark side and make sure we're making the what for us are difficult, ruthless, I mean, the ruthless choices can sometimes be the difficult ones for certain players. So you can invert it easily, creatively, um, you know, especially, uh, you know, playing upon a player's motivation and present them with choices that would lower their morality score, but their their gut doesn't want them to take that choice. And it presents interesting mm. complications for a morality-focused dark side character. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, in terms of, of modifying FFG's system and kind of, and, and, and really wrapping this discussion, we've talked about the reskin. We've talked about items and economy, um, obligation and duty. Um, Darren, talk to me about player power, man, because this is a, (laughs) this is kind of a big one. Okay, uh, so we'll just say it. If you really want to capture the epic feel of the old Republic era in your games, we highly recommend that you start at night level play. Not only will this give your Jedi players access to lightsabers from the get-go, but it will up the power level of all the PCs. Like it's been said before, this is an era of myth and legend, And with that come the mythical heroes and the mythical threats and the mythical powers that you will either have or discover along the way. Um, Even so, some argument can be made to start as creation-only characters. Um, If you look at the prelude chapter of the characters in the SWOTOR, they feel like that they're PCs working through their first 150 points. And by the time they're done, 150 points of XP in um, the FFG system, by the time they're done, they've got a variety of tricks. They've started to focus on their chosen roles. And for the remainder of their story, this, these roles will follow them. You know, tank, healer, damage dealer, um, and all of the ones in between. So if you really want to start your players at the beginning, look at these prelude chapters for ideas. Um, keep it local and focused. Um, don't have them travel around the galaxy too much. Then, when they've reached night level play, open up the galaxy to them. Let them go. Let them loose. And you will see some really great co-narrative storytelling. (laughs) Absolutely. All right, guys. Any final thoughts on playing in the KOTOR era? I think we've, we've talked about core themes. I think we've given GMs and players a lot to think about, a lot of ways to structure their campaigns. Any final thoughts? I guess the only other thing that I wanted to point out was that, um, especially in the sense of the Star Wars, the MM, uh, Star Wars, the Old Republic MMO, um, if you're looking for resources as far as like you know what vehicles to have, what uh, themes to use, and anything along those lines, take a look at Wikipedia, take a look at Star Wars, the Old Republic MMO's webpage, and just get ideas and see what's going on there. I mean, it doesn't take much to kind of look something up off the MMO's page or 
any of the support sites to talk about new gear that's for sale in the cartel market, new speeders, new storylines, and then simply just go to Wikipedia and look it up in corresponding way. You don't have to necessarily play the MMO, although it is real fun, um, <laughs> to kind of get ideas as to what to do in the system. Just familiarize yourself with what's going on in the game. Go to Wikipedia because it's all written up there, and you can just read through it and kind of enjoy the story and what's going on. Yeah. Um, one more final thought. You know, since we've been sort of touching a little bit on, you know, Star Trek themed items in Star Wars, mm. um, back to the Mandalorian thing that was previously discussed. One of the things I find fascinating is Mandalorians have a very similar feel to them as Klingons, and you can <laughs> you can you can kind of find that kind of battle brotherhood um, themed. Uh, storyline, which, uh, you know, you can find numerous different types of uh, inspiration out there. And it doesn't just have to be Star Wars. Um, I, I might get stoned for saying that, but there's a lot of great things out there um, that will be great inspiration for you know, a variety of different themes. So Absolutely. Absolutely. Dude, that's, no, Mandalorians are Klingons. Klingons are Mandalorians. I mean, from a cultural standpoint, if somebody told me in Star Wars there was a thing like Mandalorian pain sticks and like, you know, like like a, a pubescent ritual was to be shocked by these things a dozen times as you walk through a gauntlet, I'd be like, yeah, that sounds like Mandalorians. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I would not, I would have zero problem with that whatsoever. I mean, the Klingons have their own clans. You could even look at, at Next Generation had some of the best storylines for this, but... Um, a lot of the Klingon-focused wharf-heavy episodes where they get into the political infighting and strife among the, you know, the Klingon council and the various clan politics. You could just file off the Klingon, throw in Mandalorians, and you have a plot right there, already written, and it's brilliant. Absolutely. <laughs> Greatness. Absolutely. Excellent suggestion. Excellent, excellent suggestion. <clears throat> Very good. Well, thank you to everyone who suggested this topic. I, I love it. Um, this is really the first era discussion we've had. Um, we had a, a, quite a few people contact in saying, look, I, I want to run in this era. Can you talk about it? So happy to do so. Happy to do so. If you guys have suggestions for things you'd like us to talk about, whether those are specializations you want us to focus on, a force power you'd like us to dig into, uh, an area of game mastering or player uh, uh, base usage that you really want us to focus in, tell us. Email us, GM Chris, GM Phil, or GM Dave at d20radio.com. Head to the Order 66 uh, Facebook page, post it up there, or head to our forums at d20radio.com slash forums, where we have a dedicated set of Order 66 podcast threads, one of which is entirely devoted to show topics. And uh, we have a lot in the hopper, but... Uh, as longtime listeners will know, we kind of pick, uh, you know, <laughs> what what intrigues us the most at the time and kind of what gets the most votes um, and, you know, kind of what's pertinent to uh, what's happening now. So get there. Let us know what you want us to talk about. Greatly appreciated. Well, now, do you guys want to get to some listener questions? Absolutely. Let's, yeah. Let's do it. He doesn't seem to take a hint, this guy. I was beginning to wonder if you'd got my message. Messages from the Edge. Boy, am I glad to hear your voice. I think it would be wise if you took advantage of my knowledge in this instance. So welcome to Messages from the Edge. This is our regular show segment where we take the time to answer your game and rules questions about the system. How... Can you people get us these questions? 
you ask me because you are screaming at the, you know, uh, device in your hand that's playing this podcast for you. Um, well, I will uh, repeat what I just said. Head to our forums, post it up, register, post your mind, head to the Order 66 podcast boards. Uh, we have a messages from the edge thread. You can email us again, GM Chris, GM Phil, GM Dave at d20radio.com. Post it up on the Facebooks. Also, if you're brave enough, you can also leave us a question via the voicemail on the D20 Radio hotline at 262-D20-RADIO. That's 262-320-7234. And, uh, man, Darren, do you want to relate our first question tonight? Yeah. Yeah, our first question tonight comes via Facebook from Christopher Hughes, who says, I'm a short way into a campaign. And one other player has discovered that he is not a tutelary droid, as he thought, but actually an assassin droid. With a heart of gold, we're not playing murder hobo stuff here, <laughs> uh, with many layered personalities. Uh, think every pulp hero archetype ever, um, which the player is enjoying jumping between as a narrative suits. Um, he, he continues, I, I really want to figure out a mechanical aspect for the player to use to really show these separate personalities coming to the forefront. Um, but I'm worried that the only ideas I've had involve him becoming a Swiss Army knife of, char- of a character, which may cause a party imbalance. Any suggestions? Ooh. Wow. Um, first off, I love this character concept. Um, <laughs> um, the, the dissociative identity disorder droid. Um, uh, but how to achieve it? Um, you know, personality types um, are really up to the player, but I think your question probably pertains more to the character having a different skill set. And truthfully, I would shy away from this as a mechanical thing, as it could be tricky, although I do think we will have a suggestion for maybe doing it that way. Um, this concept can be played out without uh, mechanical changes and still be great. Um so I think you got two obvious options. Maybe you can explore with your player. One entirely no mechanical change. One with a minor potential mechanical change. And the first way, I think, is to play it dumb. I mean, keep in mind, Star Wars is the yes and system. This means that anyone should be able to do anything with adjustments. So, you know, when a certain personality for the droid takes hold, maybe they think they have access to skills that the droid's programming may not be optimized for. I mean, keep in mind, even with just two or three green dice, the PC can still hit, um, even against a, a very high difficulty. Uh, you know, and when that happens, it just solidifies his assumption that he is what the personality thinks he is, like an assassin droid. Um, you can also take really good role-playing into account to add boost die or even pad the difficulty a bit, um, something I've, I've done in the past. Uh, and I think that's a, an easy way to do this. You know, and Just keep it simple without any real mechanical changes. But honestly, there is another option to go a bit crazy. <laughs> um, if this character, this player, really wants to diversify into different skill sets for his different personalities, let him. But make specific skills only work well when a certain personality is in control. So maybe the assassin has unbridled access to combat skills, but any other skill check suffers two setback dice when that personality is in control, Um, and so on and so forth. Um, You might even go so far as to give this player an extra two skill points per personality they have 
to pad out those personality specific skills with the caveat being that they would get suffer two setback dice to do anything else and you know make them you know make it to where he can't switch personalities like in the middle of an encounter to optimize this it needs to be something that happens when he doesn't want it to necessarily or you know before an encounter even starts basically Hmm. i don't know what do you guys think thoughts I guess that's kind of what I was thinking. Just sort of like have maybe just all these skills skills there, but when one personality is control, a certain set of skills are used at their fullest, but everything else gets like two setback dice. You know, just to represent the fact that oh, it's not really the dominant personality, and the droid thinks that he can't do those skills very well at all, and you know, flip it around to the opposite. Yeah. Well, and you know, to avoid them becoming a Swiss Army knife. You know, I do like the the setbacks and the bonuses for the personalities. But also, you know, if you work with a player, I have actually played, I actually made a character very, very similar to this, um, which we, I guess we could talk about another time. But it, it doesn't it doesn't hurt to, like you said, try skills that you're you're not good at. I mean, one of the things we've talked about in previous episodes is don't look at your ranks, play the character. Yeah. Um, and so that's a great thing. If you're in a personality, some really amazing dice roll hilarity ensues. I think that's I think that's still a valid choice, and still keeps pe- players who have focused in those areas from feeling like they're useless. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have one more question tonight. Um, at Phil, do you want to read it off for us? Yeah, I can do that. Uh, next email comes from Leslie Moravik. Yeah, Leslie Moravik, who is curious about droids. They write, Greetings, Order 66. I am playing in a current campaign set in the Clone Wars era, based very much on the events of the old cartoon series. R2-D2 has always been my favorite Star Wars character, and I've decided to play a droid shamelessly echoing the droid I love. The problem for me is that the droid creation rules, they make it nearly impossible to make a droid on par with the rest of the party. 175 XP seemed like a lot, but it's been eaten up so fast, just getting to my ability scores up. Are droids not supposed to be good player characters? Am I missing something in the rules? Mm. This is a common <laughs> a common question complaint I've heard before. Um, and Leslie, I, I don't think you're missing anything. There, there might be a mis-expectation regarding droids, and perhaps their place in the Star Wars universe. You know, R2 is my favorite character as well, but he, he's he's not really an accurate archetype to measure a PC against, at least definitely not around character creation. I mean, at, mm. at, at the time of the original trilogy, R2 is what, a couple lifetimes old? And that's assuming he's a brand new droid at the Battle of, you know, for the Battle of Naboo, right? Um, I mean, he's he's... He's he's quite old. He's been through some major scrapes. He's been through a ton of adventures by the time we're first introduced to him in episode four. And he's earned a lot of XP. <laughs> and it's going to take you a while to get to his level of ability, I think. Um, you know, But beyond that, you, you need to understand the character intent of droids in the Star Wars galaxy and the way that's represented in this game. You know, droids, simply put, Leslie, are specialists. And that means they're not going to be as innately good at most things as organics. Now, their programming can make up for that somewhat. So what, what do I mean? Um, droids are created, as, as you say, with 175 starting XP. Now, while this looks exciting, it's mitigated by the fact that they also start with ones in every single characteristic. Now, 
this big XP is to allow the player enough leeway to bump up some of those characteristics. But it is not enough, nowhere near enough, to put a droid on par with an organic um, in terms of starting characteristics. And to put this in perspective, your average organic average has 90, 100 starting XP um, and twos in all their characteristics. Obviously, you know, when it comes to aliens, you've got a, a one and a three usually as well, okay? Now, that, that 75 XP differential in droids will literally only bump three characteristics to a two, and that'll leave you with 15 XP left, which isn't enough to bump anything. This means that in reality, droids will typically have around four characteristics at one, usually pumping 70 XP into getting one characteristic to two and another one to a three. Because droid chassis, they're, they're built as specialists. You know, R2, for example, um, you know, an astromech is likely ones across the board with a three in intellect and a two in agility, which makes him a good natural tech and a passable pilot. In other words, his job, um, you know, at least at character creation. But, you know, droids make up for this limitation in their expanded programming. I mean, droids, unlike any other species choice, they get free ranks in six career skills instead of the normal four. And essentially, that's 10 free XP in rank one skills. It's just a diversified XP. And then, of course, the cool abilities that droids have, like, you know, not having to eat or, or breathe, um, immunity to the ravages of poison or toxins or the vacuum of space, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So, you know, as you, as an astromech, which is what you're wanting to play, I mean, your brawn and your presence should be ones anyway, and probably cunning and willpower too. I mean, focus on what you're designed for as a droid and let experience and play build the rest up for your character. I mean, is this, has this been a problem for you guys? Do you find droids to be a suboptimal PC choice? I mean... No. No. No, not for what they're built for. And let's face it, most of most of the droids that I've had players want to play are monster gun bunnies. <laughs> <laughs> so a two in brawn, a starting four in agility, and they're happy with ones and everything else. Maybe if they can get willpower to a two, that's that's fine for them. Uh, and then by the end of the campaign, you've got a droid with six in their agility and just murdering everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've had players take astromech droids and just make some wrecking balls with uh, built-in accoutrements and wrecked face. Um, I have I have had a player in a Rebels game that made a very Chopper-esque from Rebels <laughs> character prior to Chopper being made, so it's nice. kind of difficult for me to um, to you know, poo-poo the uh, very great build this uh, this player made. Um, and uh, myself made a, a bunch of really great characters, but you do have to specialize. Um, There's another thing that you can do to kind of shore up all those ones, oh, well, not all of them, but a, a few of those ones, in that droids can use the same cybernetic things as there are for cybernetics. They just call them, like, upgrades. They're not actually cybernetic. So uh, as far as I recall... They're not limited by the cybernetic limitations. They, uh, the cap is six, but even then, that's ridiculously. They, they like, I, if I remember correctly, they treat their brawn like it's a six. Okay, so uh, okay, okay, yeah. So there you go. So you can buy the, um, the 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 enhanced brain and get your intellect up by one. So that that allows you to pay money 
to get your intellect from one to two. And you could do the same thing for brawn with legs or arms. You could do the same thing with agility for legs or arms. There are ways to bump up some of your stats. Right. Yeah. And I wonder, I'm just sort of wondering this out loud. You know, we've talked about um, droid tech specialists in this. And, I mean, if you had a player who was a droid tech specialist and another player who was a droid who could make modifications, I mean, mm-hmm. how would that work? Could they really modify somebody beyond the normal six? Well, I mean, the rules the rules are pretty clear on when you can and when you can't do that. Um, yeah. But, you know, I mean, and, you know, at, at that point, though, it requires a pretty heavy XP expenditure and a crap ton of money. Um, mm-hmm. And if if they get to that legendary point, I mean, and it's allowed by the rules, yeah. So interesting. Yeah, it's good thoughts. Cool. It's good thoughts. Excellent. Thank you for the questions, guys. Well, now it is time to bring an end to this particular episode, I believe. And maybe if you guys have some time, Phil, you sound like you're fading, man. You sure you got time for post show? No, I'm good. I'm good. Are you good? All right, all right. I want to be. I want to be respectful <laughs> of throaty Phil. Um, <laughs> Uh, um, our next show normally would be uh, on or about the 17th uh, but we may have to move that up or back by a day or two there's a few conflicts among the hosts but we'll keep you guys posted be sure to follow us uh, on Twitter at D20 Radio and of course on Facebook's not only the D20 Radio group but the Order 66 Podcast Facebook page we will post uh, and give you guys some fair warning for the next show time if you want to catch us live um, and a great appreciation to everyone who's live in chat now watching us over Labor Day weekend <laughs> and listening to us jabber on. Um, it's been a good show topic of discussion. Darren, thank you so much for joining us for this. Uh, your insight has been uh, hilarious and very valuable. Um, and it's been great to have you on. <laughs> Thanks, guys. It's been great. It's been a good time. It's been a good time. All right, Gamer Nation. Stay strong. This is GM Chris wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. And this is GM Phil. May the dice be with you. And this is Darth Zorg saying, roll your dice single file to hide their numbers. (laughs) Nice. Best one ever. (laughs) You've been listening to the Order 66 podcast brought to you by Ethan Kinsey, GM Scott, Jeremy Bensley, Bert Ingley, Joshua Taylor, and William File. This podcast and related websites are not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games, 20th Century Fox, Walt Disney Corporation, or Lucasfilm Limited, and its content is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. All original content is the intellectual property of the Order 66 Podcast and Gamer Nation LLC.
Post show, post show. I got all kinds. It, it really sucks, it, and really one of the reasons why I really wanted to try to make this tonight. And could I use the word "really" anymore in that sentence? <laughs> uh, was the fact that it's Labor Day weekend. I could stay up later and not have to worry about having to be at work in the morning and have to teach a <laughs> class. And so naturally, what happens? I have a major. I have a, I have a pretty invasive surgery on my throat. Wonderful. Jesus. Yeah, I like I like what Chris is calling you the uh, throaty Phil. Throaty the, Phil, the the Barry White of Moss Eisley. <laughs> you know, I, I actually tried to do something of a bass voice earlier this evening, and it hurt like a son bitch. So ain't gonna be no Barry White coming out of this throat. I tell you <laughs> what. All right, dude, that's greatness. Oh, you just protect those dulcet tones, sir. <sighs> Doing what I can. Got to protect the voice box. It's the money maker. It's the money maker. Shake your money maker, or in this case, in this case, don't shake your money maker. That would hurt, man. Don't shake your money maker, man. <laughs> no, it's it's, uh, it's not to be gross, but the side of my neck has a visible four-inch scar on it right now, yeah. with all still stitches sticking out of it. Yeah, I don't know why the doctor's like, oh no, that's how it's supposed to be. I'm like, isn't there supposed to be a bandage over it? No, no, no. We wanted to get some air and you know, not rigid, not get um. You know, it's not seeping or anything like that. It's all closed up, so just, you know, just there. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm just going to be wearing high college shirts for a while. Just just when people look at you, say you should see the other guy. That's right, Seriously. man. Seriously, chicks dig scars. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but not mental ones. Wow. Well, oh, oh nice. ah, ooh. <laughs> Depends on the chick. Um Oh, but ser- but seriously, you've got some. You, seriously, when this is all healed up, you, I, I hope I hope it's like a big nasty neck scar that you can like fabricate an awesome story for every time you to explain it to somebody. You know, you can have a, a rolodex of scar stories. You know, that you just go through. You know, yeah, I saved a busload of nuns from a, a house if, if fire. If you really want to see it, I can pop. Actually, no, I can't pop the camera on. Just give me the option to. <laughs> no, well, whatever. No, it's it's it. it yikes. It it is not subtle. It is not subtle at all. So, oh, and then on, and then not not only that, but also like running from the like underneath the entire length of my jaw from left to right is this gigantic ugly bruise. So it really looks like Mike Tyson just came up and just clocked me one right under the chin. Oh, <sighs> well, you'd be missing a chunk. Out, you'd be missing a chunk out of your ear if he did that. Uh, that's true. That's true. So I've, I've I've still got that going for me. Oh my ears are intact. Anyway, so okay. Enough about my invasive procedures. <laughs> Let, let's talk about a different set of invasive procedures. Let's talk about Gen Con because I didn't get to go and you two honkies did. <laughs> <laughs> Not only that, but I couldn't leave the freaking airport without bumping into this fine gentleman here. <laughs> I cannot confirm or deny that I was stalking you. I'm just not. I can't <laughs> confirm or deny it. No, it was really, it was really kind of serendipitous to meet you while we were waiting for the bus. Um, and my crew of players, my cadre of players that I brought with me was, I brought with me uh, two people who just their first Gen Con was last year, and two people who for lack of a better term, had not been to a convention either in not in a while or at all. So I took him to the biggest one on the 50th anniversary. And it was, it was so amazing to have um, these people. And then they got to meet Phil and play with Phil. 
And uh, yeah, it was kind of ridiculous, awesome. Well, that's actually a funny story in and of itself, too. Yeah. Because <laughs> we were, uh, if, if you want me to go into it, I absolutely will, because it was hilarious. You should. You should totally do it, because I'm, yeah. So I get to the airport, and I bump into these folks, and they're all talking, oh, yeah, this is great. That's awesome. We're here to hang out. Like, okay, what, what games did you get to play? I was like, oh, we got this game this day, and this game this, this day, and we got a slot on Genesis on Friday afternoon. I'm like, oh, damn it. Friday afternoon is my one time I'm not running Genesis. I'm running, like, Age of Rebellion instead. Okay, I'm going to stop him right there. And then my face looked forlorn. Yes, it and most they, certainly did. You had the you had the ultimate sad face. I was crestfallen. I was sad panda. Okay, oh, next. Well, but it's okay. It's okay. I'll tell tell the other guy. He'll he'll have a great you'll have a great time. Have a great time. <laughs> so we get to Gen Con, and I'm one of well, originally it was three, but then it became two people who were going to be running the new Genesis module using Genesis beta rules. Uh, it was it the module is called the the Haunted City. It took place in FFG's Runebound setting. You know, it's your classic fantasy jaunt. Good times. Elven warriors, uh, arguably pal- you know, human paladins, uh, or clerics, or whatever the heck you want to call it, wizards, you know, alchemists. Good times. So I run the module, uh, run the module, get, run through it once. And I was there on FFG's, I was there at FG, FFG's invite day brought me in to run games for them and I gotta tell you I had a blast running games for, for FFG. It was it was a it was an absolute wonder and a good time. But they I was in the room with Keith Kappel, this guy named Bill, and this other guy named Jared. Uh, Jared and Bill were originally scheduled to run Genesis modules with me. Uh, Bill being the one who was scheduled for Friday afternoon. So Bill comes over between the, the ten AM and three PM RPG session. And I said, so how's the module? I was like, okay, well, it's pretty fun. I mean, you got to do this and keep your eyes out for that. And if the PCs do this here, and if they chase down the carriage, then, you know, it could be any number of things. And as I'm telling him all this stuff, he just kind of puts his hands up for a second and says, dude, can I ask you, do you just want to run the module on Friday? Because I'm running Age of Rebellion, and I'm only running this module once. You know this, and you know, you're going to be running Age of Rebellion module only once. Do you just want to swap? <laughs> and I didn't even I didn't even blank. I'm just like, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I most certainly do. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so I beeline. We get there for our three to seven. Well, well there, there's a little more setup to this too, oh because uh, GM Chance, Chris Bradshaw, yeah, um, and his girlfriend came up, and Chris is like, I, you know, I have no games registered, I have no games scheduled, but I want to play in Genesis, Phil. When, when should I show up? I'm like, well, well I, and he asked me on this on, 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 like, at the end of the day on Thursday. I'm like, dude, both of my games today had no shows. Folks got in with generics. So show up, like, 20 minutes before one of the shows. Throw, show up 20 minutes before one of, the, uh, one of the games, and you'll likely get a seat. It's like, okay, cool, cool, we'll do that. I'm like, all right, great. So FFG also had an entire banquet hall room to themselves. Unlike previous years where we had to share it with like the, the Shadowrun people, yeah. the Catalyst Game Labs. So when you get your Gen Con tickets, it tells you what table you're supposed to be at and what where the game's being played. But because FFG had the room to ourselves, all the GMs are like, fuck it, let's just play where we want. And um, the folks were saying, well, since Genesis is the new hotness, then why don't you guys have the table right up front, you know, right, right by the front door? I'm like, okay, cool, I'll set up there. So... Twenty, uh, sorry, two forty 
I get back to the room. Chris is there. Chris Bradshaw. And Jess is there. And we're just all waiting. I'm like, okay, this is going to be fun. This is going to be real fun. So what about, what is it, like 250, something like that? Mm-hmm. 250, Darren comes strolling in. And Darren, take it from there. So, yeah, we get there. Um, and we're getting pretty excited because this is pretty much why I came to Gen Con. Um, I, I was actually not going to go. And then my friends said that they could make it. And then I found out about Genesis, and then I was like, okay, well, I'm going. I'm just going to have to go. <laughs> this is going to have to happen. And so, you know, we are a prepared group of people. We found our table, and I beeline it for the back of the FFG room, yep. thinking that's where my table is. My entire group has stopped at the entrance. I'm like, why is no one following me? And I turn around, and Phil's got his arms out wide and says, you're right here. And I'm pretty sure I made some sound that was like a squee. And a squeal, and then yeah. I might have peed a little, little bit. <laughs> from from my vantage point, you guys walked straight. You walked straight, and I didn't think your group. I think your group paused. They didn't actually know that realize that I was there. I think they may have seen me say, "Oh, hey, it's Phil. Hi, how you doing?" And you just kept on going, and I'm just kind of sitting there waiting, hands on my hips. And I see you talk to the GM, and you kind of show him the ticket, and the GM kind of looks, and they kind of waves you back over to the front of the room, and you look over, and my arm, I just pop my arms up, and just like a ta-da. <laughs> And you exclaimed, no. And I just stood there and nodded my head and mouthed back at you, yes. And yes, you made a high-pitched squee sound as you thundered over to the table. <laughs> that was so amazing. Because, you know, I, there are a lot of great GMs that um, FFG gets. But as a person who's gotten to go to Gamer Nation, which, by the way, if you don't have never been to Gamer Nation, you should totally go. Um, and somebody who's gotten to both play under Phil and GM for Phil, just being at the same table with Phil and Chris could probably attest to this is super fun. Um, so this pretty much I had, and I knew Chris Bradshaw, so I know Chris. And so I had six players who I, you know, like and are great players at the table with a GM who I consider bar none, you know, a great GM and in a new system that I've been looking forward to. And it pretty much, yeah, it was pretty much the pinnacle of my time. The only thing would have been better if I'd had a single malt at the table. <laughs> and then, yeah, it would have been perfect. Yeah. No kidding. The, uh, I, I, I refer to that as my Gamer Nation Con reunion session. <laughs> it was fun. It was a fun adventure, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was a fun adventure. And I'm really excited to see what they did with magic because that mm-hmm. was a big question out there. Um, and, um, I'm a big fan of it. Um, I'm very interested to see more of the rules and, uh, reasoning behind some of the rules. And I think even after the fact, I had some questions that I ran by Phil, uh, after I had a chance to kind of think about the game, but I love the system. I love the game. I love the narrative storytelling. And, um, two of the players had never played FFG before. Oh, wow. And so this was their first introduction. And because of that, they're like, just fine. Yeah, they did. They both did. They did a great job. And they were so, you know, you you never can tell where people are at. But, you know, it's a new system. And it's, you know, it's nerve wracking when you don't know what's going on. And they picked it up really quick. And, you know, Phil's such a great GM. You know, he let them calculate it themselves. And and they learned it. And it was really, really great. Um, And it was great because, you know, two not counting Chris Bradshaw, two of the other players at the table were both GMs. And I really wanted them to see 
um, Phil's GMing style. Um, and it was a great moment for me as a refresher, as a GM. So it was really amazing uh, for me. Um, and the system was really well balanced. Phil, would you say it was pretty well balanced? It, the, the only deficiency that I saw was Ula, uh, Ula the, the, uh, the, the dwarven alchemist. I really feel like she got kind of shafted in her ability to deal dam- to, to participate in combat um, as, as a combative character. Um, I mean, she had a high intellect, that's for sure, and she had some. She basically had magical grenades, but her attack skill was one yellow, one green. Mm. Now, mind you, for uh, for um, for grenades, since you have to be at short range anyway, the difficulty is starting off at one purple, so it's it's doable, but. More often than not, because of that low attack pool, anytime that player threw the grenades, they really almost only were able to trigger the basic effect. Mm-hmm. They were never able to generate enough advantage to hit and um, you know trigger the blast or trigger the disorient or do anything like that. I had a very and it, see this is the thing about pre gen creation, Phil. When we ran through um, at Gamer Nation Con this past spring, we ran through the, mm-hmm. the Black Nova Gambit. Mm. One of the pregens I created for my table was a uh, a saboteur who is a grenade monkey, right? And one of the critiques I got from the from the the, the guy who pl- from the the player who played him was a very valid critique was because he had so much of his XP thrown into talents in order to get those that cool you know blast ability stuff that the that the the saboteur can have. Um, his skill ranks just weren't there with his agility. So that was exactly the same thing that happened. It's like all he could ever pull off was the basic hit. He could never generate enough advantage to really pull off some of the cool abilities that he had from a talent standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, if she had like an extra skill rank and was starting at two yellows or if her agility was a little higher and she was rolling three dice, she may have been, may have been better with it. So, Hmm. Yeah. And my my only critique, which you know Phil kind of cleared up for me originally, was I was actually playing uh, uh, Leoric, which was the mainstay wizard, mm-hmm. and and he, he he only had he had a really good I guess wizard is correct. He he had signature spells, um, but the signature spells didn't have a lot of add-ons like some of the other spells, and I felt like you know I felt like there wasn't enough for me to generate the add on the extra purples in order to generate special effects, even on the spells that weren't signature. And so there's a little bit of, I'm interested to see what the final, uh, if that's not already the final cut, but what, what, how that works in the rule system, as far as um, people who hyper focus on a spell, particularly the signature spell thing or, or, or something similar to that and see how that they do that. Now, Phil, you told me the nec- the necromancer of the party actually had harder checks to yeah. cast arcane. The, the Oryx signature spell was his uh, was his um, arcane spear. Uh, it's a spell that deals base eight damage, mm. crit crit two, vicious three, mm-hmm. can be shot at medium at a medium range target, and the difficulty is base two purple. Oh, now his skill was. And his skill is three yellows and a green. So yeah, he could generate it. Yeah. Now the necromancer had a had pretty much the exact same spell, same stats, same everything, but his starting difficulty was three purple. 
and it wasn't a quote-unquote signature spell. So I'm thinking that a signature spell is something that can't be modified anymore, but it, it is easier to cast. Oh, that makes much more sense. That's yeah. what I'm thinking a signature spell is. Okay. Yeah. yeah, okay. I really like that. That's that's kind of a give and take for somebody who specializes. Mm. Well, it's almost like a also, signature. It's almost like a signature weapon in Star Wars. I mean, if you got like a heavy rifle, or I mean, for Pete's sake, a carbine. His base damage is nine. It's got a medium range. That's two purple difficulty, and you can trick that thing out if it's your signature weapon to make it to advantage crit and vicious three. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. also keep one more thing in mind that it costs you two strain to cast a spell. Yeah. yeah. That. That is that so was the thing that struck me the most. To sink, there's something else to sink advantage into. Yep. I loved that mechanic yep. when I found out about it. There was a lot of there was a lot of love and both hate for that mechanic because you have some people, especially in the Star Wars world, who those of us who played uh, OCR and RCR for Wiz- from Wizards of the Coast, the idea of basically having to spend strain to use the Force, it was mm-hmm. it was so gross. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a pain in the rear and it was like oh god this sucks i think that put a lot of bad taste in some people's mouths i don't know at least on the start i actually show. remember that mm-hmm. chris and and when i saw the two strain i i thought and in fact i think i even whinged to phil about it i'm like wow two strain i mean i'm gonna be unconscious like really fast um but that's good but, that's and, the balance that's the good game balance because magic is powerful yeah, magic is powerful. And I mean, my original argument, which was completely invalid, was, you know, the paladin with a hammer does more damage, has better soak and better wounds. And Phil's counter argument was, yeah, but you have only a two to crit and vicious three. And I was like, yeah, yeah okay, you're right. And when I, th- when I thought about it, when I got out of my player head and back into my GM head, I was like, oh, yeah, that's probably a better idea. I wish there was still a way to mitigate other than advantage, like a talent or something eventually. That would mitigate you down to one strain. There I think it would be great. There might be. We just don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, the other thing is, is that the, the the paladin that you were comparing it to had the Warhammer that had like it was like base eight damage. Um, it had a crit rating of nine. Not enough nine. I'm sorry. It had a crit rating of five, and it had concussive to knockdown, and the the wielder could spend two strain to deal an extra three damage on a hit. So, like, right out of the box, this person's hitting could hit just for 12 damage. Mm. Yeah. But no crit could, can, can use concussive. Oh, it's also an accurate one. Oh, that, that's what it was. It was an accurate one. That was yeah. the other thing. So, their attack pool was good, but always had a, at least an extra black die in there for, for being inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. Although, the guy playing our paladin was hilarious. Mm. Do you remember him? Every time he nearly died, he was still saying, "You're under arrest." Yep. <laughs> oh my I'm god! I'm gonna chase him. I'm gonna chase him. Let's go. Let's go. I'm like, all right, dude. <laughs> I loved it. You want to chase down the vampire by yourself? Have <laughs> at it, sir. Go for it. But that's what makes the system so great. Is you know, it gives people that opportunity, and I really. God, I just, I love it. I'm going to, unfortunately, you know, one of the, my biggest whinges over time have been, you know, I need a basic bolt-on system for some of my games. And, you know, I've been using 
I know this is an FFG game, but I've been using Savage Worlds as my bolt-on for a lot of things I do, including Savage Harry Potter and Firefly and a bunch of the things I've run at Gamer Nation Con. It's not a bad system for it. It's not no, a bad system. I, I love it. But I'm posting, I'm, I'm basically putting a lot of hopes and dreams into Genesis because FFG Star Wars was what really got me out of that D20 mindset, guys. Yeah. And brought me back to being the kind of GM that I remember myself being before I got into that mindset. And so, man, you know, even my wife, who is not a Star Wars fan, but we won't talk about that, um, has played the Star Wars FFG system. And she was like, that's good. That's, you know, she liked it. So, I mean, that's a big testament to somebody who doesn't normally play role-playing games a lot yeah. or tries systems. I've converted more new role players to the entire concept with this system than anything else. It's amazing. They like it. So, yeah. oh man, makes me reminiscent. Well, I'm, I'm hoping, to, hoping to bribe Huli I'm, when he starts or whoever starts the, the Genesis podcast. I want to, I want to help them in any way possible. Well, he's in Ooh. chat. <laughs> Billy, you know my number. <laughs> so, Phil, was this your first time, uh, uh, you'll pardon the term, whoring yourself out for a, uh, a developer to run games? It is. It absolutely is. Um, and I compare it to the, the first time I went to Gen Con, which was 2014. Um, when I went in 2014, I was paying my own way. Um, any game I wanted to run, I had to run after the convention because that's when most folks were available. So I'm like starting running at 8 or 9 if I'm lucky, and gaming till like 1 or 2 in the morning, which is fine, but, you know, it, it makes for a long day. Um, I, Which still leaves a bad taste in my mouth. I have to buy tickets to play games. Um, and I mean, I know it's only like 4 bucks or 6 bucks, and I know that's how a lot of these games even pay their own way, but it's still one of the things of like I'm spending all this money and now I have to spend a little bit more to to play games. So you know I kind of rolled my ass that kept going. Also because it was sort of limited as to what I could play and when I could play it, yeah. I would be spending a lot of time just walking around the the exhibition hall, which you could really only do a couple times before you're like, I've seen everything and I really don't have enough money for anything else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. so, like so this time. This time I go, I'm, I'm, I have to, I have to run 24 hours of games over four days. I can only run two sessions a day, so like a 10 to two or three to seven. So I really get like, you know, and there's, you know, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday is tw two set, two uh, shifts. Sunday has one shift, a 10 to two shift. Um, so I can basically have one shift to myself, an hour break in between to grab lunch, but I'm running games. Which is anyone who comes to Gamer Nation Con knows that's what I love to do. Yup, I'm running yep. games. FFG is paying my way to run games for them. You know, I, they they cover my beds, they cover my room. All I had to do is get out there. I'm having fun with folks who are coming to my table, wanting to play the game that I'm running. Um, after the con, uh, after the con exhibition hall closes, I can then go and hang out with friends. And gaming kind of becomes an option, not in sort of an obligation. You know, I, I got invited into a, a another Genesis game that Sam Stewart was running Saturday night, 
And Sunday night, I got to sit down with a bunch of guys from FFG and run them through the uh, fratricidal tendencies module that I ran for for my Fallout hack. <laughs> difference, the difference there is they got to be the first ones to play the new Fallout theme for Genesis. Ah, yeah. very nice. I updated all the characters and rules to to match in what the what I had for the for the Genesis beta rules. Very, Please very tell me nice. you're bringing that to Gamer Nation County again. I won't have to bring it as soon as Genesis drops. I'm posting that up on the D20 Radio forums, uh, D20 Radio blog. Mm, awesome. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it'll be available, and, and yeah, I will probably be bringing it. <laughs> Who am I kidding? <laughs> Who am I kidding? By the way, Darren Hooley's in chat. He says he would be happy in all caps to have any in all caps help. <laughs> yeah, he, he and I will. He, he and I will circle around. Yes, do do so. Like my my first Gen Con was like two thousand five, two thousand six, um, and you know it was that's back like when I was doing Origins. Yeah, so I mean, I just went and experienced it. But after that, like I, I met um, and became friends with with Chris Bradshaw and uh, and and Dom Dominic Crawford, and mm-hmm. basically the three of us. And this was back in Wizards of the Coast days when they had the Star Wars license and they had Saga Edition out, and I was doing the podcast. So it was. It was like the three of us, basically, we did that for like, I mean, Bradshaw's done it for forever. I mean, for everything. But for for, for me, it was like for the next two or three years, I did that. I hoard myself out to Watsi and they paid my way. But I was, I'm like you, I, I don't, I enjoy running more than I enjoy playing. So it's like, all I want to do is run. And it was like, for those years, I would run four, three, three to four games a day, you know, and you're just destroyed at the end of it. You know what I mean? And it was mm-hmm. like, there was a couple years during that period where, you know, because the three of us were willing to run that many games, they didn't need any other GMs. So we were the only Star Wars GMs in the Watsi Hall, basically. And, you know, we had our own little corner of the table, like the redheaded stepchildren we were with Star Wars while everyone else was playing D&D. And, you know... You know, generics come up, can't get a table. It's like, come on, come over, play some Star Wars. Come on over. You, yeah. And light, <laughs> lightsabers. And, <laughs> and it was, it was fun. And there's times I miss it and there's times I don't. <laughs> so. Oh, I almost forgot to give special props to, it was really great because these, like I said, I had two people who were new to conventions and new to FFG, but I also had two players who knew FFG. And who played Star Wars? Oh. And Sam Stewart and Keith both dropped by um, to say hi. And, and you know, Keith, I love Keith's. Uh, Keith, you know, they're like, "Who's he?" And I'm like, "Well, he's a freelance writer at Fantasy Flight Games." And they're like, "Who's Sam?" I'm like, "Well, he's the editor and RPG designer for Fantasy Flight Games, and you know, the senior senior RPG producer there." And I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" And I was like, "But they, I mean, that's what makes that." fantasy flight so amazing to me is that they are so hands-on and they're so there um and 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 keith keith in in particular i love his dry humor so it was really cool getting them to come by and say hi to everybody and and stuff so props to them for shaking hands and kissing babies (laughs) i'm a game designer that means when i'm not kissing babies i'm stealing the lollipops Sorry, I, I watched The Hunt for Red October recently. <laughs> no. Come <laughs> oh. on. Dude. Man, good times. Good times. 
Oh, all right, guys. Well, I think it's a good time to call it, unless you guys have some other pertinent things you really want to get out there for the rest of the Gamer Nation. No, we should let Throaty Phil rest his dulcet tones. Fair oh, enough. and I have to give Huli props. He's um he's he's named tonight's episode, uh, which is which is the Knights of the Throaty Phil. <gasps> oh, Huli, you're my hero. <laughs> He's mine too. <laughs> oh, <cool>. <laughs> <sighs> uh, all right. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you for your continued support of us, man. It is tremendous. And uh, love to have you back. Yeah, thanks. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. All right. You guys take care of yourselves. You too. Good night, Gamer Nation. And good luck. <laughs>